death of Jesus on the cross was the greatest expression of God's love towards us. It clearly shows us that God loves this world, that God loves us as a people, and that God loves us individually. Today, I really want you to leave here knowing that God loves you. That might seem like a very simple thing. It might seem like you would say many people know that. But the truth is many people don't truly understand the gospel and that God really loves them. They think that maybe because of their, their sin or because of they haven't done as many good works as they would have wanted to do or because of past failures in their life or because of their weaknesses that God doesn't love them. And we all need to be loved. Um, I want both the men and the women to hear that today because sometimes men say, oh, I don't need to be loved. I just need an axe and a wooden cabin and I'll go out there and I'll be all right. I'm so tough, I don't need love. <coughs> we all need love. We are all made to be loved by God. We are all made to be loved by others. And when that is not happening in our life, we are unhappy, we are unsatisfied, we are confused, we get into despair, we get into a time of anxiety or whatever it is. That's what happens when we don't know we're loved by God. Who are you supposed to know you're loved by first? God. This should be the primary relationship in your life. Of course, an outflow of that is we love our family. Stephen loves the church. You know, all that kind of good stuff. But we love our friends. We love our community. We love our husbands. We love our wives. We love our brothers. We love our sisters. We love our daughters. We love our sons. <clears throat> we're made to love. And even more, we're made to be shown love. We need to be shown love. We're not meant to be just stoics who walk around never telling each other we love them, never showing affection to each other, never showing affection to our family, never showing affection to our loved ones, never showing that we love people. We need to be showed that we're loved. So I want to start in some human relationships. I have two daughters. <coughs> and one thing you learn as a parent is your kids don't have the same personalities. Right? That's not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. We serve a Heavenly Father, and we all have different personalities. So my daughter, Talia, since she's here, I'm going to talk you up. So it's not really talking up because they both express love in different ways, and you have to get to know that as a dad. So I, I went away last weekend. The pastors went for overnight from Sunday to Monday. Talia was crying like I was going on a tour in Iraq. All right? She looked at me. I think Natalie told her on Wednesday I was going away. She cried all the way through. The whole week was miserable. We can't tell her anymore until I'm going to leave. <clears throat> After church, we're walking around holding hands. She's just crying. I'm like, tell, I'm coming back tomorrow. It's going to be all right. It was about 5,000 hugs, a bunch of kisses, a bunch of I love yous. Kira, 
I'm not sure if she even knew I was gone. And as a dad, you work through some of those things. So I know my daughter loves me. She loves me deeply. But she expresses it in a different way. So when I came back that night, Talia was cartwheel, backflip, roundhouse, hug. Kira kind of looks off in the distance. She's one of those, like, you're going to pursue me. No, she's, she's one of those. I ain't running to you, you're running to me, and you better deal with it. So she definitely came up to me. She hugged me. And, um, but there was no I miss yous. You know, there's no I miss yous. I wasn't sure. Once in a while, I have to do a check. You know, I ask my wife, you think she loves me? You know, do you think she even likes me as a dad? I don't know. And she's, of course, and I know it deep down, but I just, I need to hear it sometimes. I'm a vocal person. I need to communicate. <clears throat> so the next day, I take my kids out on data dates. And so, Talia loves the Texas Roadhouse. Kara loves Buffalo Wild Wings. But a few weeks ago, we're driving in the car, and Kara, stone cold, said to me, that a dates are boring. And as I slowly died in the front seat driving, I said, I've got to step up my game. See, Talia loves food. You bring her in with food, she's quiet. We used to put her in front of the TV. You know, we come back next week, she'd still be there like, you're smiling. I could take Talia anywhere. We had a great time. Kira, you've got to go, like, jump out of a plane. You've got to, you know, show up in a motorcycle, jump on the back. She needs action. So we went on a dutta date. And so she said, I, I wanted to help her pick where she wanted to go. She said, let's go pet the dogs at the mall. I said, great. Let me go be allergic and pet dogs at the mall. It's going to be a blast. So we go and get the dogs. We get this little beagle. I'm telling you, they're cute, man. If I wasn't allergic, I'd have a dog. I really wouldn't. So we pet it, you know, and we're having a good time. And then, you know, we say we're finished and we go out. And then we realize Santa's at the mall. So this is serious. She said, Santa's in the house. This is serious. So we went down. She took a picture with Santa. Um, and then she got on the train. She rode the train around. She's ringing the bell. We went in the distance. We just had a blast. We had a blast because I learned her personality. And I learned that you have to shape things around that as a dad, as, as, as a parent. It's, oof, wow, it's thunder right there. And so <clears throat> that night, she came up to me and she gave me a big hug. And she held on to my neck. She said, Dada, I miss you. I miss you in one way. I needed that expression of love to know. I knew she did, but I needed to know that she loved me. And as a dad, I needed that expressed to me. And you know, we'll get that in the application portion of our, our sermon, but we really need to express our love to one another. But most importantly, we need to know that God has expressed his love to us. We need to know that God loves us deeply, passionately, wholly, and unconditionally. What's the best way to know that God loves us? What should we look to? See, other things can be shaken in your life. If we look to our own performance, if we look to how many sins we've committed, if we look to how many times I've been to church, if we look to how many people I've talked to this week, that can be shaken. But the cross, the work of the cross that Jesus finished on our behalf as the God, Son of God cannot be shaken. That's something you can look to every day of your life and know that God 
loves you. God has forgiven you. God has reconciled you to himself. And so we're just going to study one verse today. Because going through the story, um, this is the center point of the story. We're talking about the redemptive narrative. The center of the story is that God's own son, because God so loved the world, came to earth and he died for us while we were still sinners. This is the most amazing expression of love the world will ever see. Not just in this life, in eternity. So if you could turn with me to Romans 5.8, if you don't have your Bibles, I ain't judging you. It said, says in there, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <coughs> I think it's important to know that God is intentional about showing us his love. So you go through the whole story of the Bible, right? We watched Prince of Egypt last night, me and the family. I'm telling you, that's one of the best animated movies made. I can sit through that one on Netflix. And you see God showing his love to his people. He's doing it through mighty signs and mighty wonders. We see that even in Adam and Eve, even though they sinned and rebelled, God still showed much grace. He clothed them. He still had relationship with them in the generations to come. He established David in his kingdom. He, he um, saved Noah and his family to make sure he didn't wipe out the whole earth. Let me tell you, this is a good movie coming out with Russell Crowe. I saw the, the trailer, man. They're going to make that movie right. But God is always showing his love. All throughout the Bible, you'll see God showing his love. But the greatest way he showed his love is through action on the cross. Now, people can tell you they love you, right? You ever met that person that says they love you, but their actions don't follow? I see this with fathers all the time, and it drives me crazy. I'm telling you, one of the things I'm most passionate about, probably because of my own experience, is guys want fathers to the children. Yet they say they love them, but they don't provide for them. They don't pursue them. They're not around for them. That's not love. That's some weird, narcissistic, delusional, I love you, where the heck are you kind of love. Love is always followed up by action. And we see here God take action. We see him not only say, I love you, but do the most amazing thing to take on flesh and to die on the cross for our sins. Now, do you guys know that scientists say that roughly 93% of our communication is done in body language? Some people say 65 to 93. You guys know that half the message I preach is not with words. I'm just throwing stuff around, right? That's because it's the best way of communication. You know if you've listened to a, uh, a John Coppola and Joe Vett conversation. What the heck are those guys talking about? There's like three words in the conversation and people are just throwing stuff around and they look at you and say, you know what I'm talking about? I say, I have absolutely no idea what you are talking about. One time they were just yelling at each other and saying, you are what you are. Another one saying, you are what you are. No, you are what you are. And there was just so many body gestures and body language going on that I said, they're understanding something I, I'm not understanding. Here. It's Italian culture for you. But in very sovereign kind of way, when we look at 
God's body language on the cross. And some might say, well, he didn't open up his arms. They pinned him there. But I would say you have a very low understanding of God's sovereignty. When we see the, the body language of Jesus on the cross towards his creation with open arms, with a posture of humility, with breaking his, his body being broken and bleeding for us, it should in an astounding way tell us that God is love and that God loves us. See, other things can be shaken, but when we look to that cross, it demands that you believe that God loves you. And the mo even more amazing, you get the second part of the verse, it says that he died for us and showed his love while we were still sinners. Now, it's tough for us to understand this kind of love because all our love is performance-based, right? If the waitress doesn't do a good job, what do you say to each other? She ain't got no tip. That just hurt herself. That took too long. I don't like the way she looked at me, right? We're always performance-based. When's the last time you took your employer out for lunch when he was treating you bad? Does that ever happen? Last time you got in an argument with your spouse, do you come home with, uh, you know, an argument you thought you were right? When you're wrong, you come home with flowers. An argument you thought you were right in. When's the last time you said, they're treating me horrible, I'm coming home with flowers? It's been a horrible month. They've been horrible to me. I'm coming home and loving them. No, because our love is performance-based. God's love is grace-based. It's based on his unconditional love. He died for us not because everyone down here was behaving well. <coughs> it's quite the contrary. He died for us because we all were sinning. His love was purely initiated by his undeserved grace towards us. He died while we were still sinners. The most transformational gifts you'll ever get in your life are the ones you don't deserve. They're the gifts you don't deserve. When someone gives you something when you don't deserve it, it changes you. I don't know if anyone read Les Miserables or seen the play of the movie. I like the Liam Neeson one. They were singing way too much in this new one. I can't, you know, Maximus, Gladiator can't be singing like that in Les Miserables. I liked it for the first hour, but six hours in, I said, Natalie, I can't finish this movie. But what happens at that beginning of that movie with Jean Valjean? He's a criminal. A priest takes him in as a criminal. He gives him bed. He gives him dinner. He takes care of him. Anything he needs, he gives him. What does Jean Valjean do that night? He gets up. He steals all his silverware, which was worth money, and he takes off. The law enforcement bring him back in front of the priest, and they say, we got him. What are you going to do? says, that's his silverware. He pardons him. He gives him an undeserved gift. And his life has changed forever. Not because he got what he deserved, because he deserved to be prosecuted. Because he got what he didn't deserve. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we don't get what we deserve because we're filthy sinners. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that should change your life forever. 
that should impact you more than any other act in human history. That's the gospel. We get what we don't deserve, and we're pardoned even though we were still criminals. Now, I never want this to get old to us, that God's son came and died. Right? And so I was trying to think of, <coughs> excuse me, I was trying to think of better ways God could have died. And then I said, what am I trying to do? Death is, you can't die, go away. I mean, some of the good ways you can die, I think, is with family around you, with loved ones. It can be a better environment when you die. But death is never something that is easy. It's never something that is not hard to go through, whether you're the one dying or you're the one who's losing someone. But Jesus definitely didn't die with his loved ones around him, cooking them chicken soup and singing hymns. and He died among a mob of people who were crying out, crucify him, who were watching him die, who hated him, who called him a blasphemer, and who killed him in the worst way possible at that time through crucifixion. That's how our Savior died as an expression of love towards us. And I wonder, why, why did God choose to die like that? Definitely one of the reasons to show you how much he loves you. I can't even, I really, I was trying to contemplate and I said, well, I got to understand to degree, but it's really beyond me. Some of the way in our culture we can understand is, we understand the electric chair to a degree, right? That's how, how people killed and even we said that's not humane anymore most states give you the option where you get lethal injection but the electric chair was actually invented by a dentist did you guys know that and a dentist saw his neighbor die <coughs> I'm coughing today you've got to forgive me and love me it's undeserved <coughs> take a drink before I get into electric chair narrative A dentist, seen, he saw his neighbor die because he put his hand across the terminals of a generator. And it looked so peaceful to him, he said. He said the dude just went down dead. He said, wow, this is a good idea. Maybe we can electrocute people to death and that will be a humane way to kill them. Because what happened is back in the day they'd hang people and they'd break their necks and they'd be hanging there for 30 minutes just suffering and dying. They said, there's got to be a better way. So the dentist came up with a way to invent this electric chair with other people, or he initiated the idea. And the first person they ever electrocuted was a guy named, I think it was William Kemmler. He killed his lover, Matilda something, with an axe. He killed her with an axe, so they said, this guy's got to go to the electric chair. And what they do in an electric chair is they take two electrodes, one on your back, one on your head. And they drive roughly 700 volts through your body. They, they, they were testing it all at that point, so they're seeing how much does it take to get this guy down. They hook him up. William Kemmler, they drive the 700 volts. It doesn't kill him. It's head smoking. It's head smoking, and they're smelling burnt flesh. And I'm sorry, I need to paint a picture here to make a point. This is kind of NC-17. Burnt flesh, he's not dead. They drive a 1,000 and 1,200 volts to him. 
It was so grotesque. The ground an electrode right to the spine. Melted right onto the spine. Smell of flesh. The guy who was watching it said we would have been better if we killed this dude with an axe. He said it was that publicly disgusting and inhumane. We should have broke out an axe. That would have been a better way. I want you to amplify some of those things you just thought and say, well, that's not humane. That's not. Our Savior died in the most inhumane way possible. You've got to understand what crucifixion was. The lecture chair will be over relatively quickly in, in relation to the cross. Crucifixion, of course, was invented by the Persians. It was brought back by Alexander the Great. It was mastered by the Romans. They wouldn't even crucify the Romans because it was that excruciating. It was that horrible. The men would hang there for days, days. Some of them were eaten by wild animals. Some would get sepsis because they poked them and their intestines opened up. Some would just asphyxiation. Um, it, it was just horrible ways they died. They would just hang there. Public humiliation. Mob, mobs looking at them, bleeding for days. People would just scream things at them. It was the worst way to die possible. Worse than the electric chair. Yet our God loves us so much that he was willing to go through crucifixion to show us that he loves us. Now, someone in your life, a loved one, died for you, right? In that kind of way, took your place, jumped in front of a bullet, uh, um, uh, was killed for you. How would that impact your life? I would argue that you would never forget that for the rest of your life. And I would argue you would never be able to be the same ever again. How much more God's only son jumps in front of the, front of the wrath of God in your place and dies in your place, how much more should that love change you forever? It was the greatest expression of God's love towards us as his people ever or there will ever be. If you ever struggle with the fact that God loves you, look at the cross. Now, what are some things, I want to peel them out a little bit because I, like you, sometimes struggle with God's love for me in a masculine way. I'm telling you, guys need to know that they're loved. So many dudes have so many daddy issues and never talk about it. I was watching some comedians yesterday, and I'm telling you, 90% of them joked about their father never hearing from him, never talking to him, how he didn't care about him, how he didn't provide for him. And human was the way they dealt with it, but they were messed up. They were messed up. The way they treated women was messed up. The way they spent their life in a wasteful way was messed up. The way they looked at love was messed up. The way they used society was messed up. They needed a father, both heavenly and earthly, who expressed his love to them and shaped them as men. So I just want to emphasize that today as we dive in. One of the things that can shake you, because you can't be shaken if you put your faith in the cross, because you know God loves you and always died for you. You know your faith is secure. You know that you're with him now when you're going to heaven. But I'll tell you ways we get shaken, because just like you, I get shaken sometimes. You know, I'm asking for signs, you know what I mean? Make a dove fly by at noontime to let me know that you love me. 
Let my siding be read by 3 o'clock this afternoon, and I'll know you love me. Let me point you to the greatest sign, the cross. That's what you need to look at, and you've got to rehearse that daily. Things that will be shaken, your sin. If you base God's love on the fact that you sin and you fall short, you will never truly understand the love of God because we sin daily. We sin daily. So sin is any action, thought, or attitude that is done that is not God-honoring. We sin daily. So if you base God's love on the fact you sin, you're never going to experience the transformational love of God. Because that can be shaken, right? Because we're sinners, you sin, you fall short, we're all sinners. The Bible says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. <laughs> you're a liar. It's a good thing to recognize that you are a sinner. Because Jesus recognized you were a sinner, and that's why he came and died for you. How about your good works? Does anyone in here think they can do enough good works to be right with God? And if they are, please give me a list right now. What are you doing that makes you right with God? Because I need to, everyone said I've got to start worshiping you or something. What, how many good works can you do and what are these good works? And please tell me about them. Because the Bible, the narrative of the Bible says over and over again, our righteousness are like filthy rags before God's because it's all relative. I hear guys all the time, and I use this example all the time. They tell me they're not really sinners because they're not as much sinners as the guys next to them. That's like one trash can saying to another trash can, I don't have stuff seeping out the side that's nasty, but you're still a trash can. Because it's all relative. When you take yourself and put yourself next to a holy God, we see that over and over in Scripture. What happens to people? They fall down they say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm undone, I'm a sinner, I'm on holy ground, I'm undone. You can't do enough good works. And if you base God's love on the fact that you can do as, as many good works as needed to please him, you would think that love, God's love is shakable and it will affect your life. The third thing, if you base God's love on the fact that other people who were supposed to love you well didn't love you well, then your love will be shaken. How many people have fallen short in their roles, whether it's a father or a mother or a brother or a sister? And let's just start with parents because that's an easy, easy one to understand in relation to God. What happens when a mother or father treats their children cruelly or they can never be good enough or they can never please them or those kind of things happen in their life. Sometimes people impose that onto God and they say, I can never be pleasing to God. I can never do good enough. I'm only going to disappoint God. There's no way he can still love me. There's no way. I only say that because I've, I've battled that. Because I said, these people were supposed to love me. They're supposed to protect me. God must be like that. God must be ready to let me go. I wasn't good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable. 
The gospel is that you have great value and great worth because you are made in the image of God, because you are God's children. God's love cannot be earned. It was finished on the cross by Jesus Christ. I need you guys to know that. Know that he loves you deeply. You have value with God. And he's not disappointed in you. Because of what? Cross. Now, what we always try to do in this church is, of course, we want to know God loves us. That scripture says he shows his love for us. But we want to take what God is doing for us vertically and put it out horizontally. Because what's the greatest commandment? To love God and to love others. It says you can't love God and not love your neighbor. So these people who say they love God but hate their brother, the Bible says they don't love God. They're so much the same that you can't separate them. That's what scripture says. To love God is to love others. There's people here who need to forgive people in their life. You need to show undeserved grace just like God showed you undeserved grace and forgive people in your life. We're not allowed to not forgive him. What is the Lord's prayer? Forgive others like you haven't forgiven. Those who have trespassed against you. You cannot love God without loving others. And part of loving others is forgiving others like God has forgiven us while they're still sinners. You can forgive someone even when they are treating you wrongly. Now, I'm all for healthy boundaries and all those kind of things. I think those are good. I'm talking about what's going on here. What's going on here? Is there someone in your life you have deemed unforgivable? Because if God deemed us unforgivable, there'd be no salvation. We need to forgive people while they were still sinning against us or have sinned against us. So there's a story that just came out this year. Um, there were two brothers. The older brother got shot, dead. 13 bullets, gone. He was shot by a man named Michael Rowe. His name was Anthony Cologne. This guy, this little brother, looked up to this big brother. He was everything, everything. He brought stability in his life. He protected them, protected him. So when his brother died, he had so much hate. He had so much unforgiveness in his heart that it affected everything he was, everything he did how he looked at the world. Time went by, he got married, he had two kids, and God began to work on his heart. Because we know God pursues people, he tracks you down. Started to work on his heart. And he forgave him in his heart first. He said, I forgive him. He started praying for him. What does the Bible teach us? Pray for your enemies. Right? Some of the distinguishing ones. Christian. He went to visit a prisoner in jail who he knew. He walks in to visit him. He looks across the table and who's sitting there? The man who killed his brother. Now, the criminal in this case, Michael Rowe, said, I didn't know what was going to go. I don't know if it was going to be an altercation. I didn't know if people were going to start yelling. I didn't know if people were going to start fighting. I didn't know what was going to happen. The guy, Anthony Cologne, who was the little brother who lost his big brother, got up and he walked over to him. He said, I've been praying that I was going to see you. I want you to know I forgive you. I'm praying for you. What did that man just receive, Michael Rowe? An undeserved gift that changed 
his life forever. And it changed everything he was. He started going to school. They started spending time together. He would visit him in jail. Imagine visiting your enemy in jail. He was finally graduating in jail, and that guy, Anthony Cologne, showed up, and he put the robe on him. He put a robe on his brother's murderer. And I want to read you the quotes from that ceremony. This is the guy who had killed the criminal in this case, right? Who had killed this other man, Anthony's brother. He said, Anthony is my hero. I have two sons. If, if my sons grow up to be half the man that Anthony Colon is, I'll be an incredibly proud father. And if I don't know it, if I can sum it up or explain any better than how I feel about Anthony Colon, it changed my life. It changed my life. And then Anthony said this about relating to the criminal who had killed his brother. For some reason, I felt that he was dealing with all the things I was dealing with like condemnation, self-pity, just like this hovering darkness that was around. I felt that when people think that's strange, I, you know, he feels that people think that's strange, but it's just part of the nature of a person that's closely connected to God. Is a connection with God can allow you to see past what's in front of you, he said. Something in the gospel that can make us forgive our enemies when we deem unforgivable. And the final thing in that story, they're both sitting on a bench next to each other. And the criminal first says, God has a purpose for me. God has a purpose for us when he's speaking to both of them. Then Anthony laughed and he said, yes, us. Smile. That's redemption. It's grace undeserved. It's an undeserved gift and that's what the gospel is. I want some of you in here who, it's my final point of application. Some of us think because we go through tough times, because we go through suffering, because we go through pain, that God doesn't love us anymore. Right? That's a retribution theology. That he must be punishing me for something I did. That's totally false. You look at every person who was loved by God in the Bible. They suffered greatly. It could be God is just using your circumstances to bring him glory and you much joy. It could be you're suffering because he's making you more like Jesus. He loved Jesus, right? In a unique Trinitarian way. God the Father loving God the Son, yet he allowed him to suffer for the greater glory. Some of you might be suffering because God's disciplining you. You didn't want that one. God disciplines who he loves. Just like we discipline our children who we love. Some of you, God's disciplining you so you start living a certain way. So you'll find more joy in your life. Because he loves you. So every, any suffering you go through is for a greater glory. For a greater joy even in you. I want us at Restoration Road to be an affectionate people, to people who show love to each other, to tell each other 
that we love each other. You don't have to do it every time. I'm not. Let's not get weird. Hey, hug. Love you. Take care of yourself. Kick your water. Nice catch, Joffrey. But I want us to be a people who show that we love each other through our life, through caring for each other, through praying for one another, through being there for each other in tough times, through being there for each other in good times. Because love is meant to be expressed. And God loves you, and he expresses love through the cross. Don't ever question that. That's unshakable. Amen? Let's pray.